Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing great, Kyle. Talking about a lot of fun stuff today. Yeah, we are excited to get back to uh, one of what I think is one of the biggest brewing issues on in the state legislature for this legislative session. On our last episode, we took a peek at the craziness going on in Athens, Georgia, related to the resignation of a district attorney there and what that means for Governor Kemp's appointment power. Um, we also had a great conversation with Jill Nolan about the issue of coal ash disposal. So if you missed that one earlier this week, go check that one out. Uh, But I'm excited, Luke, to get back to talking about legislative session because Governor Kemp is rolling out a proposal that he says is intended to combat gang violence in the state. Um, It essentially amounts to increasing the authority of prosecutors and proposing policies that are likely to increase the sentences given to people who are convicted of crimes that are committed in in the context of gang activity. So we're going to talk about that proposal, what it means uh, in the larger context of criminal justice reform, particularly uh, as it relates to some of the choices Governor Kemp has made about the budget that he proposed. You know, the policy environment under Governor Kemp seems to be going in a very different direction than what we saw under Governor Deal. Then for our second topic this week, we're going to recap the results from the New Hampshire primary. Uh, That primary was Tuesday night, and Bernie Sanders eked out a narrow victory over Pete Buttigieg in that race. Iowa and New Hampshire now voting sort of concludes the early states that are the some of the whitest states in the primary process. Uh, The race now moves on to more diverse states like Nevada and South Carolina. I mean, then we're not far from Super Tuesday, where there will be a whole chunk of delegates handed out. And then Georgia, not participating in Super Tuesday this year, they're going to vote before the end of March. So we're going to talk about how this race is developing as we make our way into the Democratic primary calendar. So those are going to be our big topics for the week. But one thing that we haven't checked in on in a little bit is developments related to the budget process. So we haven't really spoken since this development happened, but legislators amidst this debate on budget cuts that lawmakers don't feel like they've really gotten enough information on, they decided to take the very unusual step of stepping away from legislative days in the middle of session to hold committee hearings on the budget to to dive deeper into the budget and try to get more information about that. That meant that lawmakers are only meeting in committees right now, and you're not having the regular flow of legislative days. So session is really paused at this point. Um, But we do have some developments as it relates to the budget today on Thursday evening, the day that we are recording. Um, The biggest news seems to be that we, you know, amidst this conflict over the budget between Governor Kemp and Speaker Ralston, we were really looking for instances where the legislature would actually start officially pushing back against some of the cuts and reinstating them in proposals, in pieces of the budget that are moving forward in the budget process. Today on Thursday, we got the first bit of that evidence. James Salzer at the AJC reports that the House is adding back in funding for food safety inspectors and animal inspectors. Uh, remember that Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black testified he was one of the few officials to really lay out the stark impact of some of these cuts. Um, It's notable that he is not somebody who reports to Governor Kemp. He is a commissioner who was elected um, and therefore is not serving under Governor Kemp. He, uh, He testified about the impact of some of these cuts and lawmakers appear poised to add back funding for some of these inspectors. Uh, Lawmakers also moved forward in subcommittee a proposal that would add funding back in the Public Service Commission to avoid furloughs, add back funding uh, for state schools that serve students who are blind and deaf, add back funding for the Georgia Commission on the Holocaust, and add $200,000 into the budget to run the state's new hemp program. Um, So I think that's really a small piece of the debate. There's obviously more to come. That's one narrow area of the budget. But lawmakers do feel some 
incentive to start putting more money into the budget, start putting these proposals on paper and moving them forward. Um, so that's a, a big development since we last talked about it. Luke, what do you? What are your thoughts hearing that lawmakers are going to start to put some money back into these cuts? Well, it answers the question that I've been wondering since this whole process began, and you know that the question is: Would lawmakers do anything to oppose Kemp on these cuts that publicly they at least stated that they were upset with, and it, it seems like they are uh, trying to work on some of them. I'm interested that these are the first issues and areas that are being addressed, and maybe it just has something to do with the Megan calendar. Uh, but I, I feel like as far as um, what which cuts were the most controversial, it was definitely uh, more around the mental health and generally the healthcare spending cuts in general were where I heard the most consternation from other folks. Um, I, I feel like the Department of Agriculture got hit pretty hard from, you know, I, I like to think of myself of a good governance person. And while those are not in sexy issues, I feel like, you know, Gary Black's department was getting hit incredibly hard. So they probably do need uh, some more funding. But all in all, and, you know, this is going to be a continuing discussion is at, at the end of this thing, they're going to have to make the budget math work. And, you know, the, the governor's office and the, the budget offices, they set how much revenue that the state is supposed to bring in. And that's pretty much, you know, there's some finagling you can do on the sides, but that's pretty much the only amount of money they can spend. And so if they start adding in money here in this subcommittee, by the end of this thing, they have to come to a budget that balances. So eventually they're going to have to cut something. And so, you know, I, I imagine if they end up adding money and they want to keep it, the only place they're going to be able to take it from is probably the teacher pay raises. And they're either going to eliminate those or reduce them significantly. Yeah, I think that's the one pressure point. I think another potential area that you could look for is if the governor would nudge the revenue estimate up a little bit. Uh, the legislature did pass legislation that increased uh, basically the number of businesses that are required to collect sales tax, primarily internet-based businesses, app-based businesses. So there, there has been discussion about whether or not that would result in the revenue estimate being increased. I believe that law goes into effect in April. Uh, but one of the arguments against doing that appears to be that part of the reason we are in this budget crunch is lawmakers passed a tax cut in 2018 based on the idea that they would get some revenue windfall from the federal government when the federal government did tax reform in 2017. That windfall didn't materialize to the fullest extent that they thought it would. And so there is some there there are at least voices pressuring for caution against spending that money before it comes in. Um, so that's another place to look as this evolves. Um, the other there's a couple other developments on this that I think are worth touching on briefly as well. Governor Kemp has tried to push back in the press against some of the narratives that are coming out about the budget cuts. You know, he's tried to describe this as, well, this is part of the process. He told a scrum of reporters that uh, people are up here to fight, referring to lawmakers who are who are interested in putting some of these cuts back in. I mean, then he kind of, you know, threw a little elbow to the press saying that the press had been fanning the flames about this discussion when this is sort of part of the normal give and take. Lawmakers, though, haven't always thought that this is part of the normal give and take. And one way in which the Kemp administration appears to have taken at least a half step backwards is the director of the Office of Planning and Budget, Kelly Farr, uh, he testified again before budget writing committees this week. Um, and he was really criticized when he was one of the last presenters in the regular original budget hearings earlier in session. He was criticized for not being forthcoming enough about the impact of these budget cuts. Um, he apparently was more forthcoming to lawmakers this week. And they seem to have been happy to finally be getting a little bit more information. So there does seem to be movement here. But it is at the same time also notable that this is the first time that we are having a conversation around significant budget cuts, widespread budget cuts since the Great Recession. 
And so, you know, you have some normal give and take of the legislative process, but you're having that normal give and take with a lot of money being cut from programs that lawmakers have been struggling to fund since the budget crisis that was caused by that recession. So, you know, despite the fact Governor Kemp feels like the media, maybe even people like us are fanning the flames, these are also very important issues as it relates to outcomes for Georgians who rely on these services. I mean, they really deserve the scrutiny that it's gotten from us, from the great reporters down at the Capitol. So glad to see the press doing its part. I don't think Governor Kemp is doing himself any favors by not treating these cuts seriously, because, like, we're not dumb. Like, people aren't dumb. And if you cut hundreds of thousands of dollars from a department and then say, oh, it won't matter. I just don't think anybody buys that. And I think, you know, he has an obligation to deal straight with the people of Georgia and make an argument for why his vision of the Georgia budget is uh, more uh, palatable or, or just like a better investment of state funds of, you know, the citizens' money than what we have been doing. And just the utter lack of argumentation on that I find you know just like a missed opportunity for Kemp because he's really not leaking very much on this he's very much just saying teachers need more money that would be a good thing to do I am right and to do that we are going to cut these cut money in these other departments but don't worry it won't be that bad don't listen to the people who run those departments saying it's not going to be that bad I am the governor I know what's right you know, like that seems to be the tone that they're taking rather than trying to engage not only the citizens of Georgia, but like the legislature, because their argument to the legislature is, do you see the title governor by my name? I don't see that title by yours. Yeah. And I think that that sort of speaks to, you know, part of the way in which Republicans have campaigned for spending cuts over the last two decades is they always highlight the fact that government is doing wasteful things, that there's a lot of abusive programs, and that if you cut this spending, it's wasted money, and it's much better, and that money is much better spent rather than being wasted in some terrible government program. It's much better being spent coming back to you in the form of a tax cut. I don't, you know, I think that there are conservatives who would say that that does not characterize Georgia's budget the way that it may have you know, 30 years ago. I mean, all of the fat, wasteful... Well, I, I, let, let me go go further, because I, I, I agree with you, Kyle, wholeheartedly, and this is exactly the thing that I think is so weird, is at least to, like, my reading and my paying attention of what Kemp has been talking about, he hasn't even argued that the money that he is cutting was being poorly spent. Like, he hasn't... Well, there are things like... There are things like... You can cut landline services for some agencies because they have state-issued cell phones. There are, like, reductions in office space or moving to less expensive office space. I mean, I don't think that it's unfair to characterize some of that stuff as waste or, you know, we the economy, the way in which people do business is much different today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, agencies probably don't need landline phones. But that makes up such a small share of the cuts. And that's what that's what's interesting to me is there would be an opportunity here for Governor Kemp to stand up and say, we actually think that it is good for the state to spend less money on crisis mental health services and instead have private actors come in, have private insurance fund coverage for those services because people will get better they'll get better services, they'll get better care. There's an opportunity to make that argument. I would obviously disagree with that argument, but there's an opportunity to make it. And that's not the argument that's being made. Instead, it's, you know, taking the few examples that make up a small share of the cuts, of cuts that, you know, are probably even Democrats might even agree on, and then characterizing all of the cuts as being like that, rather than making an affirmative argument for the agenda that you're trying to pursue that's what I think is interesting. But when you've spent 20 years making the argument that it's all wasteful, it's hard to then come back and say, okay, maybe these aren't wasteful. Maybe these are important services, but they're better done by somebody else. I mean, they just don't seem to be interested in making that argument. Uh, well, I guess my even greater point, and maybe this is the last thing we can say on the budget for now, is just like they don't really seem ar- interested in making any argument. They are interested in being submitted to. 
and having the legislature do what they're telling them to do. And I kind of doubt they will. One final note on the budget before we go. The one thing that does seem increasingly unlikely is that the legislature will support another quarter percent reduction in the state income tax. Um, A new report from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute shows that that cut would now cost $615 million per year, which is $65 million more per year than prior estimates have shown. Doing that cut is more expensive than the combined budget cut that Governor Kemp is seeking across the mid-year and full-year budget. So making that math work for both of those things seems really difficult at this point. And it got even more difficult than it was before with this new estimate. All right, so let's move on to our first big topic for today. Um, So when Governor Kemp campaigned in 2018, he made a significant part of his message about combating gang violence in the state. Um, He and Attorney General Chris Carr really raised the alarm about increasing rates of gang crime, um, citing what I think are somewhat problematic statistics about the number of gang members in Georgia. Um, And Governor Kemp, as he likes to say, he is now delivering on that promise that he made during the campaign trail by introducing legislation that would increase criminal penalties for crimes that are committed in a gang context. Governor Kemp's proposal would do a few things, and and let's kind of run through the list here. Um, It would add murder committed in violation of an anti-gang statute as a qualifier for the death penalty. It would allow people who are prosecuted under anti-gang laws to be sentenced between 5 and 15 years more in prison per count, meaning that the number of years that somebody is imprisoned if they are convicted of multiple gang-related offenses that the number of years is really going to pile up if prosecutors really pursue this policy. Um, It also creates a unit of prosecutors within the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Kemp would argue that this is meant to allow prosecutors to prosecute crimes committed in multiple jurisdictions or across jurisdictions. Um, The concept here being that sophisticated gang activity is good at evading local law enforcement and local prosecutors, and that one of the barriers to successfully prosecuting gang crimes in the state is that prosecutors get to prosecute what is within jurisdictional lines. Having the GBI create, I believe for the first time, a prosecutorial unit and having them allowed be allowed to serve as special prosecutors in these cases, they argue, would make prosecuting these cases more effective. And then there's a second piece of legislation that is a part of this package that would extend the arrest powers of campus police an additional 880 yards beyond their current boundaries. Uh, This is really aimed at giving campus police more authority to make arrests as it relates to campus-related crimes, um, things like robberies that have increased around Georgia State and Georgia Tech and Atlanta That is also a part of this proposal. Luke, let's just sort of start at the beginning here. Can you describe for us your thoughts on what you think the scope of the gang problem is in Georgia? You know, Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr will argue that this is an important pressing public safety issue. Uh, Georgia police officers have raised this issue as being an increasing problem for them in their communities. What do you think of those claims and and what the overall scope of the gang-related issue is in our state? From what I've heard from both some friends who are prosecutors and criminal defense attorneys, like, gangs are real. Gangs are out there. They're doing gang stuff. And it's a problem. It's a problem all around the United States. Is it the most pressing criminal justice problem out there? Probably not, but it's real. And there's probably some more specific things we could be doing to address you know, gangs and, you know, gangs coming all shapes and sizes and, uh, races, you know, there's white gangs, there's biker gangs, and there's the more traditional gangs you hear about, like the Crips and Bloods. So it's, it's a real thing. Um, is it the most pressing issue in Georgia? Is it an increasing issue where like gangs are starting to slowly take over everything? I don't, I don't think so. And, um, I, I think this is an area where Kemp is continuing a trend where, 
Governor Deal and the Republicans in the legislature really accepted a role of being kind of on the forefront of criminal justice in the United States, and especially for the South, were doing things that were innovative and uh, I would maybe even tempt to say progressive in the sense that they were pursuing drug courts and accountability courts and other things that you know we've been copying on you know the first step act the federal legislation on criminal justice reform started here <laughs> like a lot of those ideas were ideas that we had um so i you know i think that's that's where i i base this conversation it might seem off topic but i really don't think it is um because i think this is just another area uh just like the budget on criminal justice issues where kemp is just laying out a very, very different approach and a very different tact, which I, I find just interesting because of the fact that if there is one thing that Governor Deal was pretty much bipartisanly very popular on, it was the criminal justice stuff. And so the fact that Kemp is kind of completely a reverse course on that by focusing on this issue, I think is uh, really peculiar. Yeah, and it was interesting. You know, Governor Kemp told Tim Bryant in Athens earlier this week in an interview that claims that he is, uh, you know, reversing Governor Deal's leg legacy on criminal justice reform are absolutely ridiculous. And I think that in some sense, that statement could be true. I mean, he has not proposed legislation that would roll back every criminal justice reform that was pursued by Governor Deal in his tenure, but he is chipping away at it in some ways. But I think the way in which his approach to this issue with gangs is fundamentally different than the approach that was taken on other crime-related issues through the thrust of criminal justice reforms that were adopted under Governor Deal, is that the story of criminal justice reform is largely redemption for people who have done bad things. If you do bad things, for instance, because you are addicted to drugs— it is important for society to recognize that you deserve some opportunity to redeem yourself because you may be acting a certain way because you were put in a situation that is not entirely your fault. And setting up structures like accountability courts, giving people resources and opportunities to learn from their mistakes, redeem themselves, and become functional contributing members of society again that's sort of like the point of doing criminal justice reform the the policy push on gangs takes a completely different philosophical approach it increases the opportunities that the death penalty could be used which means ultimately the criminal justice system would decide that there is no way for a person who commits murder in service of a gang crime uh, to redeem themselves at all not even to give them the opportunity to live the natural life that they're going to live, but to eventually kill them and not give them an opportunity to redeem themselves at all. On top of that, the ability to charge people and add, add on the sentences per gang-related crime conviction means that the prison sentences people will serve are going to be longer and increase the possibility that they may never get released from prison. It's interesting that in this context, the story that is cited by Governor Kemp for why these additional sentences, why these more punitive measures are needed, is a gang-related crime in which a child was murdered, and the person who was convicted in that case is serving two life sentences plus 675 years. Does anyone think that that punishment was not enough? That person will never leave jail. But, you know, Governor Kemp, I think, implicitly believes, the, the mother of the victim in that specific case believes that that person who committed that crime should have been eligible for the death penalty. To me, that is an entirely different philosophical approach that says that some crimes that are committed mean that there is no way for you to redeem yourself you will spend the rest of your natural life in jail or we will have more opportunities to put you to death for doing these crimes. And that's the way in which, you know, people who want to see the criminal justice system reformed think that that philosophy about redemption for people who commit nonviolent offenses needs to be extended to people who commit violent offenses too. 
that redemption needs to be a part of the criminal justice system. And Governor Kemp clearly does not believe that, given the policies that he's pursuing in this context. Yeah, I I don't think I have much to say in opposition to to what you just laid out. I think it's just interesting on where Kemp is putting his focus, you know, because as governor or as any politician, you only have so much time at the microphone and so much pressure you can put on the legislature to do what you want them to do. And Deal spent so much of his time on the criminal justice area trying to help people find redemption and make people uh, be contributing members of society again, which I think if we're being honest in raw numbers, there are far more people who have made a small mistake such as like, you know, you know, a serious but small mistake of like robbing a gas station one time or smoking pot versus like hardcore gang members who kill children. Like that's a much, much smaller population. One of those is much smaller. It's the gang population. And so the fact that like Kemp is focusing on that versus focusing on the other area where it could probably have a larger impact is just curious to me because as you mentioned the the really only huge difference that this policy is pursuing is that someone who is going to die of jail in jail of natural causes will now be killed by the state and ultimately you know like i I, i'm not pro death penalty uh and i you know i don't really see the benefit of the state's time in pursuing that action versus trying to help all the other people. But even more importantly, trying to do the preventative things that are really important to keeping people from joining gangs in the first place. And that's what's completely absent from here. It seems like Kemp thinks the solution to these issues is jail. Like, jail is the only solution, and that people are born gang members, and they shall die gang members in our jails. You know, that that seems to be the way he's approaching approaching this issue, because, you know, while, like, the GBI, if it, you know, doesn't have a really dedicated gang task force, it probably does actually need one, and there probably should be more resources for, you know, prosecutors to actually, tr- you know, prove uh, gang cases. But, if I was governor, I would be a lot more focused on, like, why are people joining gangs? Then what do you do about people after they have already joined a gang and committed a crime uh, with a gang? And, and the just complete absence of that issue and this prioritization of making people go to jail as long as possible, uh, I think is just the complete wrong approach uh, on this issue and is such a small part of a larger problem. I don't know why Kemp is so focused on that while also cutting the things like accountability courts that are actually working and most importantly save the state money (laughs) you know like when we're having these budget talks that's pretty important and i i think you know for conservatives they should like the fact that it saves the state money but also saves lives yeah and i think the other thing that's worth surfacing on this issue luke is that this also suffers from the same pitfalls that some of the inputs in the criminal justice system are just bad or or they're racially discriminatory in a way that almost guarantees that this policy will be implemented in a racially discriminatory way. I mean, you know, one of the animating arguments for having redemptive policies for nonviolent crimes like drug-related offenses is that it is pretty clear, and I think relatively broadly accepted that you know drug related laws have not been enforced in a racially blind way they've been enforced in a racially discriminatory way you know i think it also holds that more serious crimes can also be prosecuted can be enforced in society in a more racially discriminatory way i think it's worth examining here for instance if you take the death penalty some of the reservations that the state of Georgia has had in recent death penalty cases, reservations against testing for DNA evidence in death penalty cases, typically right before a person who has been convicted is going to be put to death. There was an excellent analysis in the AJC that we'll link to in the show notes that showed that in uh, recent death penalty cases, the state has refused 
to allow DNA testing to be done that would have shed light either way on whether or not the person who was set to die actually committed that crime. And the state of Georgia has not allowed that testing to go forward, even in some cases when the victim's family has requested that DNA testing be done. I think if you are advocating for a policy that would increase the use of the death penalty, it is incumbent on you to also pursue policies that would ensure that when the death penalty is delivered, that it is not delivered to somebody who did not commit the crime. But the state in, a, in, in recent years has sort of refused to grapple with the possibility that death penalty cases that were argued and sentenced long ago may have been done so in contexts where the defendant was being discriminated against because of their race, and that it is possible that innocent people are being killed by the state in some of these instances. That, to me, is, is one troubling aspect of this. Another troubling aspect is part of the way in which this policy is being rolled out is to use a gang member database, meaning that if you are suspected to be a member of a gang or if you have had previous involvement with the criminal legal system through gang-related activity, your name and your information is now in a database. In other instances where databases like these have been implemented, uh, the two examples that come to mind for me from recent reporting are Los Angeles and Chicago. There have been abuses of that system where people have been entered into that gang database uh, based on faulty evidence or very loose connections. So if you then use that database as evidence in a court case or use that database to justify more uh, intrusive policing practices against people, you are layering all of these additional policies onto a foundation where people are being racially discriminated against in the criminal justice system. And if the state of Georgia is not willing to grapple with the problems in two of these areas, they should not be increasing penalties and leveraging those penalties as a way to combat gang crime. It's just bad policy. So I know I kind of threw a lot of policy out there, a lot of big thoughts on philosophically what this means for our criminal justice system. But Luke, we haven't seen, or at least I haven't seen directly, democratic response on this issue. And, you know, you may be listening to this and think, yeah, it could be difficult for Democrats to argue in favor of people who have uh, done terrible things. I mean, what is an adequate response from Democrats to this policy push by Governor Kemp? What does that look like? Well, I'm a little biased towards my own thoughts, <laughs> obviously. So, I mean, again, the place I would start is that this is all about deterrence and I mean it's a hundred percent deterrence there's not one aspect of this policy that is prevention of trying to prevent people from being in gangs uh, and you know the research whether it's the death penalty or longer sentences or anything else has shown that I mean there just really isn't a deterrence effect this is not a thing it doesn't work and so on that front I I mean that's where the Democrats, should start is that the only thing that this accomplishes is putting more people in jail for longer. And if you think that is good public policy and that reaches the, you know, policy outcomes that the state of Georgia wants, then I think Kemp should just come out and say that. Because that really seems to be where he is starting to go with this policy and with many of his other policies uh, where he cuts the budget is that he seems like his goal is to get more people in prison. And if he thinks that's how you build a better society, then he should just say that. Um, that and, and I think that's where Democrats should come from on this, is that not the, uh, you know, not the gangs aren't a problem, because they probably are to some extent. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, gangs don't have a race. <laughs> there's, there's white gangs out there too. So, uh, you know, Kemp could try to work towards those things as well. And, you know, trying to help crack up the gangs that are there. Uh, but, doing it in a way that's smarter, doing it in a way that is based off of what people who look at this in an intelligent scientific way says is working rather than doing, you know, like the politics of the last 50 years in the South, that the solution when it comes to crime is just longer prison sentences. And, you know, I part of the reason I'm so frustrated by this is just, 
Georgia was moving in the right direction on these things and again being a leader around you know in the nation of trying to be innovative in this area and just to return to this old playbook that is so worn out and so disproven that the solution to everything is putting in jail putting people in jail longer is just so frustrating and so i hope you know the legislature doesn't just blindly accept this and just do it because it's easy politics this is easy politics but bad policy um because i i don't think anybody who is in a gang will be like well i was going to do a bunch of crimes but now they've added onto these sentences and that's just not it's just not how people's brains work um so i i just don't think uh this is going to be very effective if if uh introduced in to the state and so I, I, on those measures i hope uh, Democrats and Republicans who probably oppose this are able to do so uh, and use it as a jumping off point for having an actually productive conversation on how to deal with these issues rather than doing the cheap, easy campaign year politics of putting people in jail longer. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You could imagine Governor Kemp, I don't know if he listens to the podcast, maybe he does. You could imagine Hello, him listening to this and saying, I can't believe these guys are arguing in favor of gang members. And it would be easy probably to cut segments of this podcast, put it in an ad and say, do you stand with the people who support gang members or do you stand with, you know, loving Georgia families? You can be for a policy that will reduce gang crime that does that also does not dehumanize the people who have committed it. And I think that's sort of the place that if Democrats were to take this on, I mean, that's it's a hard argument to make, but it it is, in my view, the right one, um, that no one is in favor of these crimes being committed, but you can push for policies that means the crimes will not be committed, and it doesn't mean that the people who have committed them will have to die. So I think that's, you know, that would be the response that I would hope to see um, and I think that is a response that's focused on prevention. It's focused on all of society's issues that create the environment in which people feel like the only path they have forward in life is to join a gang and to do the kinds of things that are done in these environments. You know, it's a tough argument, but I, I think it's one that needs to be out there. I think an argument that you may see, uh, one that frames this as sort of a campaign finance issue, an influence of money in politics issue, is during the last reporting quarter, Governor Kemp did receive a combined $25,000 from two private prison companies. Uh, private prison companies got $140 million in state funding last year. You know, it's pretty easy to look at these policies, and regardless of intent, it is pretty easy to look at these policies and say the effect will be that more people are put in prison and those people will stay in prison longer. If those people are serving their sentences in facilities that are owned by private prison companies, that means that the executives at those companies will earn larger profits, larger salaries based on more demand for their quote unquote business. And that's an angle that I wouldn't be su surprised to see Democrats go after um, because it gets at this larger discussion about the influence of money in politics and whether or not that's creating good or bad policy. Um, so we'll leave that topic there for now. It'll be interesting to watch these proposals as they move their way through the legislature and see if they garner any pushback from Democrats, although pushback from Republicans would be particularly interesting in light of the conversation that we've had. Um, for now, though, let's move on to checking in on the Democratic race for president. Uh, the Democratic primary is now coming south, Luke. We have finished the first stage of this race. Iowa and New Hampshire are now done. Uh, we talked a little bit about Iowa right after that happened. Uh, in New Hampshire, we got a much more clarifying result. We got results in a decent amount of time. Uh, all of the precincts are reporting. It appears they are reporting accurately. And what those reports showed was that Bernie Sanders won a narrow victory over Pete Buttigieg in New Hampshire. Sanders got 25.7% of the vote to Pete Buttigieg's 24.4% of the vote. Amy Klobuchar finished in third with 19.8%. 
and those were the only three candidates to finish above the 15% threshold, meaning they were the only three candidates in New Hampshire to get delegates out of that state. Elizabeth Warren finished in fourth and Joe Biden finished in fifth, but they will get no delegates from that vote. Luke, what is your reaction to where this race stands now with Bernie Sanders narrowly winning in the first two states? You might quibble with how Iowa is described, but Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are are the candidates who have garnered the two largest vote shares in the first two states. What do you think about how that sets up the race as it heads south? New Hampshire is a interesting state. They like to be contrarian. They have... In several races, ended a race by having someone who, you know, performed well in Iowa really perform well in New Hampshire, and basically we can all go home. And New Hampshire's play a different role, like in 2008, 2016, you could even argue 1992 in some ways, where they have said, eh, not so fast, and they kind of give you a... Uh, different kind of verdict with you know the unstoppable front runner insurgent being stopped and i would say this is neither of those scenarios and new hampshire kind of gave a split verdict i've listened to a lot of podcasts in the past couple days uh, talking about these results and where the race goes forward and so i'm sorry i can't cite this very insightful thought to who had it but if you look at the the map uh, you know, Bernie, Bernie's basically won two races. You know, you can argue uh, Iowa's a tie or if Bernie won, but uh, he basically won two races. Um, but Iowa and New Hampshire are two states that Bernie did really well in last time. And he are, are pretty much tailor-made for a candidate like Bernie. And the next round of states really aren't good states for a candidate like Bernie. And so, yes, he's won the last two, but sure, the la- but the last two were made for someone like Bernie to win. So I'm going to be very curious uh, what happens uh, when Bernie is faced with black voters that he did not do incredibly well with last time. Uh, but the other thing is, really no candidate is doing well with black voters except Joe Biden, who's doing terrible with almost every other type of voter. So I, I-, I think all in all, the, you know, the state of the race is, is, I wouldn't say chaos, but it's just, you know, everybody's still filling it out. You know, I'm not, I'm not surprised that the polls have been very divided for a long time. The party's been divided and, you know, we're uniting in that we want to defeat Trump. We're just dividing on how to do it. Um, the, you know, the ends are, we're all in agreement on, it's just the means. And I think we're just still sorting it out. And I kind of feel like it's gonna, it's gonna take a while to sort it out. However, the other thing I think is, is true is that if someone can become the candidate that the South rally is behind and those states on Super Tuesday and then Georgia shortly thereafter in late March, if someone wins all of those contests or get a lot of delegates from all those contests, I, I think they'll be in a pretty good position uh, to to win because with the proportional system, it where you pretty much as long as you get 15% in a congressional district, you're probably going to get some delegates. It's really hard for there to be a runaway frontrunner like Trump was, but it's also really hard for if you get a delegate lead to lose it if you get a substantial one early. Yeah, and I think that really sets up this race in an interesting way for the South. Joe Biden is predicted to do well in South Carolina. I think the really interesting test will be, does he dominate that state? Does he win a large victory over the rest of the field? Or do other people in that field start to eat into his support among African-American voters. Nevada is a little different. It's a little unique because it's a caucus. And that caucus is really organized and dominated by union interests related to a lot of the casino businesses that are there in Vegas. Um, It's been interesting over the last few days to watch Bernie Sanders actually be on the wrong end of criticism from the Culinary Workers Union over there um, related to his proposals on health care um, but I think as it relates to Georgia and as you know, we start to think about where this race could go through Super Tuesday and through the vote in Georgia, Biden really could recover if he maintains his strong hold on African-American voters. Super Tuesday states and Georgia, when it gets here, will be good for him if he's able to do that. 
if he's not able to do that, it really does open up this race, I think, to being a lot more wide open. Um, Bernie Sanders, you could sort of see him, if he improves his support among African-American voters, it would be among younger voters, and it would start to fracture that voting demographic in a way that that white voters have been fractured in the early contests. And that, I think, opens up a window for Michael Bloomberg, who has been you know, former uh, Republican New York City mayor turned independent, turned advocate against gun violence. Um, he has really loomed over this race with the explicit strategy of waiting until Super Tuesday to really start competing. There was a poll out today of Georgia that showed that Joe Biden was polling at 32%, so still a decent lead, sort of the way that this race probably looks in South Carolina. Bernie Sanders in second at 14%, Michael Bloomberg in third at 14%, Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren in fourth and fifth behind them. Now, it's a long way until Georgia that obviously could change, but Michael Bloomberg's good position in that poll is interesting in light of the fact that Lucy McBath Congresswoman from Georgia's 6th Congressional District endorsed the Bloomberg campaign this week, and she did so amidst controversy over the way in which Michael Bloomberg felt about his criminal justice policies in New York when he was mayor. She made and defended that endorsement anyways, despite a really bad piece of audio coming out from him. So if Bloomberg is able to be a player in this race by that point, Georgia really could be an important place for the Bloomberg campaign. And at least in this early poll, he is ahead of the person who has finished a close second place in Iowa in New Hampshire, and he wasn't even competing there. How do you think that that dynamic with Bloomberg might play out uh, in states across the South? Uh, Not well. I I have a feeling that Bloomberg is only doing well in the polls right now because he's spending money there and no one else is. And I think we'll be surprised how quickly that turns out to be a paper tiger when other candidates start to have their presence be felt in the other states. I mean, Bloomberg's just alone out here. I'm in Georgia. I watch TV in Georgia. uh, And like Michael Bloomberg is just everywhere. Like every single commercial break, there will be a Michael Bloomberg ad. And they're fine. Like they're, you know, they're, they're perfectly fine. But There's going to be two more contests before Bloomberg even attempts to take, you know, take part. And there's going to be two more winners and there might be two more surprises, surprises like Amy Klobuchar, you know, coming to a really strong surprise third. There's going to be all these narratives and Michael Bloomberg is going to be nowhere to be seen on those narratives. And you combine that with the fact that Bloomberg has been in a lot of debates and he's never been that good. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's going to be in the next uh, debate uh, that's coming up and I mean Bernie's gonna rip the living hell out of him and <laughs> so is Warren and Warren really is because he's a perfect fo- foil for her and her campaign struggling and I mean if there's if there's a like if you told me right now that Elizabeth Warren became the nominee and I had to figure out how it happened I would guarantee you it would be because she used Bloomberg as a foil and ripped him to shreds somehow like that would be the way it happened and so I just don't think there's anyone up there who feels like you know there's a lot of people who have so much respect for Joe Biden because he was Obama's VP and he was a good VP he was a great VP and he's had this long career and he's done a lot of good things and he's a good person no one feels these things about Michael Bloomberg like every personal story about him is he's kind of a jerk like you can argue that he had pretty good success in a lot of areas as mayor of New York. And I think that's true, but he also had these really big blind spots and areas of policy that were racially discriminatory. He was not apologetic for it for a long time. He's going to get ripped apart and he's not going to take it grace gracefully. He's going to be annoyed if that people are questioning his brilliance is the tone. I think he will uh, take on and that's just not going to work very well. And so I, I, I think like Bloomberg, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like with Joe Biden, people, you know, joked that the best day of his campaign was the day before he announced. And I think for Bloomberg, it's the same thing that like the best days of his campaign are before he started trying to win things. Because the other thing is, too, is if your argument is I have more money than God, and so I will be able to buy this election away from Trump. If you start losing primaries, like that's not going to be a great argument. And I mean, the only thing that is going to sustain Mike Bloomberg 
for any amount of time is Mike Bloomberg <laughs> and his money. And I think if he starts losing a lot of those races, I I, I don't see what his path forward is. So I, I I've always been very uh bearish on, on Bloomberg, and I've ne- I you know I just don't I don't see it. I don't see Democratic voters getting behind it. It's just you know it doesn't make much sense to me. I'm, I think, a little bit, unfortunately, for Democrats, a little more bullish on Bloomberg, not necessarily for his own characteristics, but for the dynamic that seems to be developing here, where, you know, I think, I think Bloomberg was a little bit more contrite about some of, uh, you know, policies related to the stop and frisk issue in New York City. He has been apologetic about not seeing the problems with that sooner um, I don't think he has been as directly apologetic about the impact on the people that were actually subject to that policy. But he was able to pretty quickly leverage uh, support from African-American leaders this week as that tape came out. So I think that there is a deafness to his campaign that may serve him well, particularly if the dynamic ends up being a collapse for Joe Biden combined with Bernie Sanders continuing to be the leading candidate who in any other dynamic where Bernie Sanders was not reviled by a portion of the party would probably start to cruise to the nomination, gain momentum and be the consensus candidate by just proving he could win. Um, I think he will be vulnerable to having some other moderate foil. And if that if the person who stands there as the moderate foil to Bernie Sanders ends up being Michael Bloomberg, that becomes a more compelling argument to centrist Democrats who might consider backing his candidacy. I think that's possible. But the other thing is, too, it's it doesn't seem like voters are dissatisfied with their choices. I mean, there's a lot of people who are very encouraged and excited about uh, Buttigieg. There's a lot of people who are excited about, uh, about Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. The polling has really shown throughout this race that people are not dissatisfied with their choices they're just having trouble making their choice because they feel like the candidates are really good (laughs) and so i don't think like bloomberg is you know like bloomberg is not feeling the filling the void uh for people in the being like ah we if only we could have a once republican once independent who banned our big gulps that's who we've been waiting for like that doesn't seem to be the dynamic. The dynamic really just seems that people are are having a hard time choosing between a lot of good choices. And so I don't think just by Bloomberg being a different choice that that's going to get him any big momentum, especially when, you know, at least right now, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and to a lesser extent, but still enough, like Amy Klobuchar, they have enough money to stay in. And so they're definitely not going to spend as much money as uh, Bloomberg, but they, and they won't be even spending as much money as Bernie is, but they have enough to keep their campaign's lights on. And so on that front, I just don't see like Bloomberg overtaking these other people just because he runs TV ads constantly. I mean, Warren did pull some ad buys in South Carolina and Nevada, and she was out today with a plea for fundraising uh, to help her supporters fund her campaign through Super Tuesday I mean, obviously, this is an important moment for her to sort of use a disappointing finish in New Hampshire to sort of rally her troops and get them to back her up. I mean, I I, I certainly wouldn't count her out. Um, but I think the dynamic that has to change for Buttigieg and Klobuchar is they have to appeal to non-white voters. You know, and if you have this scenario where, where Biden is losing some of that support, some of that support's going to go to Tom Steyer in South Carolina because he spent a bunch of money there. And then Bernie Sanders his supporters do make the argument that he can actually rally non-white voters to his cause, but it's primarily younger voters who are more attracted to his democratic socialism message. Um, so where you know, the, the room for Buttigieg or Klobuchar to start making a move and increasing their support among those voters, I think that that space is really narrow for them. I mean, it's all, you know, it's all projecting. We all know that projections are all bullshit at this point. But it's it's just an interesting dynamic. It's interesting to sort of consider those dynamics when a lot of voting is going to take place before this thing gets to Georgia. That doesn't mean that it's going to be settled in, in one way or another. But I think Georgia voters, maybe to their advantage, are going to have a sense of who two or three primary choices are 
um, in a way that isn't clear right now. And you know what? That's fine. <laughs> we can, you know, it's like we, they, this, this is one of the things that like really annoys me. It's, it's like my most, my, the most annoying impeachment argument is that it overturns the, uh, results of an election. Like literally, yes, that's the point. Thank you. You figure, you figure out why they put it in the constitution. It was to overturn the results of an election and get rid of a precedent or before another election. That's why it's there. So same thing, like the democratic primary process, is it perfect? No, but this is the process and it's built so that maybe it goes to July. And you know what? It's also built that if no one gets a majority of delegates by July, then like there's a way to handle that. And so, you know, it's it's very typical of any pundit or political observer to be like contested convention, but like here here I am, contested convention, like it could happen. And and people you know, there's two kinds of people, and it's the people that admit that it would be a great news story and incredibly entertaining, uh, and then there's the people who uh, make it seem like that would be the end of the Democratic Party and handing the election to Trump, and it's just not. As long as Democrats, and I'll give Bernie Sanders a lot of credit here, he's been the loudest on this, is that like who, it's easier to say it when you're in the league, I guess, but you know, it's like whoever wins, like we're all going to be united in, in beating Trump, and so... I am really not that worried. I I just want Democrats to take it seriously and have high turnout, which, you know, Iowa was a little lower than I thought it would be, but New Hampshire was pretty high from, you know, reporting. And I'm hoping that just like throughout the rest of this process, turnout's high and people vote and they vote for who they think would be best and somebody wins at the end. Like, I, I, I just don't, I, I'm not hammering it at all. I, I'm fine. I, I think we're going to be fine, and I think the result will be better because this process is going to be really, really crazy. And I think no matter who you are, if you come out of this process alive, like you're probably going to be in a better position to beat Trump than if we had just handed the nomination to Joe Biden or to Bernie at the beginning of this thing. Making them fight for it will make them a stronger candidate. I, To this day, I argue... And I agree with the people who say that, like, the only reason that Obama won Indiana in 2008 is because he had to fight for it in the primary. So, you know, let these candidates fight it out. Let them make their argument. And I, I you know, I'm tired. <laughs> We're all tired. And it feels like this primary has been going on forever. But, you know, like, let, let's just run the thing out and see where we end up. Yeah, I think my general frustration lies with because Democrats are so preoccupied and frankly terrified at the fact that they might lose to Donald Trump in 2020, that so much of this discussion has become different candidates making different arguments for their own electability. Um, There are some candidates who I think Bernie Sanders comes to mind um, as maybe the most prominent of all of these who can shape their electability message around what they would do, how they would govern if they were to actually become the president. Um, but this preoccupation, you know, this preoccupation with beating Trump, it, you know, obviously Democrats think that that's the most important thing, but what comes after that seems to be an afterthought in this race increasingly. And, you know, I think that in a lot of instances we have candidates who are just playing political pundit and, and probably would be better served to be sitting here at the microphones with us um, than touting what they would be doing if they were to actually become the next president. So I guess I hope for a future podcast is that we get to hear, maybe once this race winnows down a little bit, we get to have these candidates competing on what they would actually do. Although, although I live in a fantasy land and I continue to live there and be fine with it. Um, but with that, I think we are going to leave that there for today. Uh, so Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Happy to be here. Happy to, uh, you know, talk about the legislature again and national politics. Good balanced show. And uh, we are going to leave it there. We'll we'll bring you more good balanced shows in the future. Although we're actually, you know, we're getting close to that time where legislative session is going to consume all of our attention. So we may ignore the primary process for a little while. I think Kelly Dobso, who uh, you didn't hear from today, but who has been keeping a close eye on the Democratic primary for us, she is going to continue to be our expert on those issues. Um, So you'll hear from her again soon, and we'll bring more to you on the legislature as well. Uh, But for today, we are going to leave it there. So we will talk to you all again soon. 
Bye, guys. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.